morning, verses 33 and 34. Uh, We're almost halfway through this discourse of our Lord, and we're over halfway through the gospel according to St. Luke, and we're sort of just kind of taking our time and taking in what he's teaching his disciples and us as we go along. If we can affirm the incarnation of our Lord, meaning that Jesus was fully God and fully man, which the scriptures emphatically attest to, we can know that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. And so we're taking our time and really considering and contemplating what God would have to say to us through his son and through his word. Now, many of you who garden know that shortly after you plant a garden and you put those crops into the ground, that it isn't too much longer that when you step back and you you take your rest and your ease and you kind of look back and survey uh, what you've done, that little by little, the weeds start to pop up and come into your beautiful garden. The, if you're, they're left unattended, the weeds will eventually grow up to the extent that you will no longer be able to recognize that you even have a garden if you, if you don't do anything about it. The only way that you're going to be able to maintain it and keep it fruitful and productive is if you go row by row and tend to those weeds regularly and diligently. And so it is with us as we go through the scriptures, if we don't systematically look and regularly look into the word of God and don't pull up the weeds that can sprout up in our lives, we can sometimes miss things that would otherwise come in and overtake us. It's really beneficial for us and it's a safeguard for us to constantly nourish on the words of faith, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 4, 6, and for us to systematically go through the Bible. The answer to the question number 155 of the Westminster Larger Catechism that came out of the English and Scottish churches in the mid-1600s said of the Word of God this, that the preaching of the Word is an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, driving them out of themselves, and drawing them unto Christ. And that's our goal, amen? It's less of ourselves and more of Christ. We must decrease so that he might increase. But that's our aim in going through the scriptures as we do in a systematic fashion, is so that we don't skip a row, or we don't miss a weed, in order that we can live more and more fruitful and productive lives for Jesus Christ. And this week's text, I think, identifies a weed that I think most of us probably see sprout up in our lives weekly, if not on a daily basis. And it's a weed that cannot stay in the garden of our heart, if we were going to keep the analogy going. So I want us to read our text this morning. It's in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 33. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's word. God's inspired and inerrant word says this, Sell your possessions and give to charity, and make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the nourishment that we get from your word. Help us to be conformed into the image of Christ as we hear you speak through your word. God, strengthen us, uplift us, help us to 
set our longings and affections on you and help us to be attentive to what you would have to say to us today. It's in the name of your precious Son we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us have have probably gone out to buy a used car or uh, something like that. We've seen on advertised on Craigslist or Auto Trader newspaper or or some other media outlet that provides those types of things. And the first thing that we always sort of come up and do is we kind of check out the exterior of the vehicle, right? We, We walk around it and we look over the exterior of the car. We look for rust. We make sure there's no uh, dents or dings or uh, any scratches that might mar its appearance. Then we kind of check the tires, and we make sure there's tread on the tires, right? We want to make sure there's decent tread on them so when we drive off, we got some traction, and we make sure that they're not cracking or anything like that. Then we're going to open the door, and we're going to take a look inside. We're going to see if there's anything, any tears in the seats or anything that's broken inside. And we might even take a little sniff to make sure that it doesn't smell like a wet dog or a moldy hay or something like that, something we find offensive. And then lastly, and most importantly, we will get the keys from the owner, and we're going to start the car to see how easily it starts and to hear the motor run. We may pop the hood and take a look inside just to make sure that we don't see any leaks or anything out of place, and most likely we're going to take it for a test drive to see that it runs as it should. But what if you responded to an ad in the paper or on Craigslist and you walk up and this thing is sparkling and it is gleaming like it just came off the showroom floor. You open the car door and everything looks new. You took a sniff and it still had that new car smell, right? You sat down in the driver's seat And the leather was still soft and it wasn't crinkled. And you turn on those heaters that are in cars now. They feel so, so good. And they work great, right? You get the keys from the owner and you put them in the ignition and you go to turn it on. And then nothing. Right? Absolutely nothing happened. You're thinking, oh, maybe you got a dead battery. But you get out of the car and you pop the hood and you take a look inside. And to your surprise... There's absolutely nothing in there. It's just an empty space. It's totally devoid of an engine to get you where you need to go. You'd kind of look at that guy trying to sell that car, and you'd think, man, you're crazy, dude, right? But I wonder how many of us are trying to live our lives like a car without an engine? How many of us are trying to look good on the outside? How many of us are just trying to live a moral life? How many of us are just trying to come to church pretty regularly? We're all polished up in our religious duties, but we lack the single most important thing, and that is having a heart that beats with love for God. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you are trying to live a life and trying to live a Christian life without a love for God, it is nothing more than moralism. You're no different than a car without an engine. External reform will get you absolutely nowhere, just like a polished-up car with no engine in it. It's one thing to come to church pretty regularly and to say your prayers, but it is an entirely different thing to see the exceeding sinfulness of your many sins, 
and the weakness that's in your heart and flesh, all the while knowing that you can still cast those, the entire weight of your sin onto your great high priest and your interceding Savior, lest you would despair. It's one thing to know that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. But it is an entirely different thing to know and feel the peace of God which passes all understanding and to have a hope and a future that is secure as today. It is one thing to get baptized and even to take church membership, but it is an entirely different thing to cling to Jesus Christ and to trust Him through your trials and your tribulations, and knowing that He's never going to leave you nor forsake you, and that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. They're entirely two different things. Looking good on the outside just when you come to church or when you're in front of your friends or your parents is never going to get you anywhere in God's economy. You may get the accolades of your friends, you might fool your teachers and your parents, but you will never, ever fool God. He sees under the hood, and He can see what's in your heart. But if that's the life you're trying to live, you are probably just a moralist. And moralism is what Jesus began chapter 12 uh, warning against and teaching about when He started this discourse. The moralists had their uh, their hype their they were had this external religious works, if you will, and they had their pompous, upright appearances on the outside, but they lacked a genuine love for God, and they will never enter the kingdom. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty three that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. That is literally devoted to destruction. But not only does he deal with the moralist, but then starting in verse, thing, verse 13, we had a visit from the materialist, right? Someone who only thought about himself, his inheritance, his stuff. And so Jesus told this parable of the rich fool who only wanted to store more and more of his crops for himself and to build bigger barns and to look back on his life and to think of himself that he's satisfied with all of his accomplishments that he had done on his own. But Jesus said that the man in this parable, that he is a fool because he didn't consider God. He didn't consider others. He didn't even consider his own mortality. He lived a life of greed and a life of selfishness. And he explains to us that the materialists, as well as the moralists, will not enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus ends that parable by saying, by way of comparison, he said, In verse 21, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So Jesus is warning us that there's two spheres of our lives that can be a great danger to us that we have to be aware of. That's the spiritual and the material. Living a life of hypocrisy has to do with the spiritual. And living a life of greed has to deal with the material. Living a life of hypocrisy has to deal with your relation to God, and living a life of greed has to deal with your life in relation to others. So what we've really learned thus far is an extended discourse or a conversation that Jesus had with a lawyer in Matthew 22, 35-39, when a lawyer asked him a question and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But knowing that his disciples might tend to worry and considering our future and the others and living and giving, he tells us that we should not worry. And the reason he tells us that is that because our Father in heaven already knows what we need, that our Father has gladly given us the kingdom. There was joy and pleasure in the heart of God to send His own dear Son into this world to rescue you and redeem you. And He didn't do it reluctantly. He didn't do it hesitantly, but He did it with delight. And when you repented of your sins and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it awakened the whole heavenly chorus to sing with praise. So we have no reason to worry and we have no reason to fear. But wanting to take us deeper and deeper into discipleship and and our walk with Him as He normally does, and wanting us to make us more and more costly sacrifices for the kingdom of God, Jesus then tells His disciples and us something that is completely radical and something that is antithetical to the rich fool. In verse 33, He says, "...sell your possessions and give to charity." Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroy. So, in opposition to the rich fool who kept accumulating more and more goods for himself, and looking for more and more ways to come up with creative storage solutions, and build bigger and bigger barns, Jesus comes and he tells his disciples, you should do the opposite. They should actually divest of themselves. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that instead of building bigger and bigger barns to store their stuff, they should be having a barn sale. Instead of amassing more and more things for ourselves and our comfort, we should be ready to give up anything that stands in the way of relieving comfort for others. We should be continually loosening the grip, as it were, that we have on our possessions and hold on to things loosely and that we might actually use them to serve others. To put it in very practical terms today, you as a Christian, you need to go to that storage locker that you've been paying monthly rent on. You need to sell the junk that's in there before it ends up on storage wars. And you need to take that money and put it to good use. Because, beloved, how many of us have things in our home that have just been sitting there for years and years and may be of some value, but it's just sitting there accumulating dust? How many of us have possessions that really have no usefulness for us or that we keep fooling ourselves and saying, you know what, when I get more time, I'm going to get around to cleaning that thing and fixing it up? (sighs) Really? How many of us have collections of this and collections of that that do nothing beneficial to us or to anyone except to allow us just to gaze upon it and look upon it with pride that we actually own it? I remember when we moved out to our house on Lincoln Road, it came complete with this nice 45 by 90 Morton Pole building. Huge building. We stored two campers in it, ours and somebody else's. It was massive. But as we started to move out there, we placed our possessions on pallets as we kind of slowly transitioned out there, thinking that someday we're going to go through these things and we're going to start incorporating them back into our new home. But you know what happened? 
You know what we did when after seven years later? Some of it just went to garage sales, but the majority of it went out back to the burn pit. So I can tell you from personal experience that you probably don't need as much as you have. But more than just selling stuff, Jesus is calling on us, his disciples, to do something completely radical, and that is to give away the proceeds. And it says here, to charities. In other words, it's to give to those who are poor. That's what it literally means. Give it to those who are not as well to do as yourself. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, the second commandment told us, then find someone whom you can help relieve their stress and their distress. It might be your neighbor. It might be an orphan. It might be a widow. It might be a missionary. It might be a newly married couple who's just starting out in life. It might be a, a co-worker, an employee. There are plenty of people in this world who are in a far worse situation than you are. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you actually willing to give up? What sacrifice are you willing to make for your own comfort and pride in whatever it is that you own? How far are you willing to fulfill what Jesus has asked you to do here? How far would you go? J.C. Ryle said of the man who follows through on this, he said, quote, This is true wisdom. This is real prudence. The man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. He makes the best of bargains. He carries the cross for a few years in this world, but in the world to come, everlasting life. He obtains the best of possessions. He carries his riches with him beyond the grave. He is rich in grace here. He is rich in glory hereafter. And best of all, what he obtains by faith in Christ, he never loses. So what treasured possession do you have that you are unwilling to loosen your grip upon? What is it that you are actually holding on to that when you die, it's just going to go just into the hands of someone else who shows up at an estate sale to buy it anyway? Are you only looking at investing in your retirement, which will end when you die? Or are you looking at investing beyond this life where it will go on for eternity where it will never die? I remember, I remember my father, my father went to auction after auction, and he was a hoarder before hoarding was cool. Massive house, pathways through it, junk piled high to nine foot ceilings, and then he died alone. And it took two days to sell off all of his stuff, two days at an auction. What did he have to show for it all? Zero. Nothing. You can't take anything beyond this life. It will never go on beyond the day you die if you don't invest it for eternity's sake. What are you holding on to that you are not letting go of? What are you holding on to that you're not sacrificing for the kingdom of God, for God's own son who has sacrificed his love and his life for you? What are you holding on to? Who do you know that you should extend kindness and charity to, but you've been hesitant to do so? But again, as Jesus taught us not to worry, because God is the one who feeds the birds and he clothes the fields and the beautiful flowers, he will so feed and clothe us. 
Jesus tells us that when we actually follow through on selling our possessions and we give it to charity and we make money belts which will not wear out, the way to gain is to give. In other words, whenever we invest in the kingdom of God, it will be safe forever. It is the safest investment you will ever make. Whenever you invest in the kingdom of God, you are making a long-term investment and you don't have to worry about a volatile stock market. There is no Black Friday in God's economy. Moreover, how many of you ladies have had to get a new purse because the old one has fallen apart? And how many of you men have had to replace your wallet because it's tearing into shreds and falling to pieces? The good news is that when you give in such a way as Jesus Christ is describing, you will have a purse and you will have a wallet that will never wear out because you will be investing in a place where it will never wear out and you will obtain heavenly treasure. And what heavenly treasure awaits you? You will have the everlasting loving kindness of your Lord, as Psalm 138.8 tells you. You will have a life that never ends, as John 3.16 says. You will never thirst because the spring that will never cease to bubble up from within, from the one who drinks of it, as John 4.14 tells us. You will receive a gift that will never be lost, as John 6.37 says. You will be held by a hand that you will never, ever be snatched out of, as John 10.28 says. You will have a love from which you will never, ever be separated from, as Romans 8.39 says. You will have an inheritance that will never fade away, never become defiled, never lose its luster, as 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5 says. The infinite desires of your heart, the fullest of contentment, the greatest of joys, the deepest of longings of your soul will be completely satisfied when you invest in heavenly treasure and you finally come home to glory to be with Jesus Christ. Listen, even if you were crowned king and queen for a day of the entire world and you got to enjoy all the treasures and all the honor that your kingdom could provide you, even if you had an entire company of angels to come and to minister and to surround you and take care of your every need, even if you had all of your glorified friends and all your glorified relatives around you back once again to be able to enjoy for the duration of the world and yet you were without Jesus Christ, you would never possess true joy. Peace would elude you. Lasting happiness would evade you. Contentment within your heart would never be found. But the treasure that you will gain is God. God will be your satisfying portion. God will be your treasure. Because outside of God, there is absolutely nothing that you can rest your soul upon. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. But then Jesus leaves us with this heart-searching principle in verse 34 when he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That is to say that your heart, the center of your being, is always going to pursue that which you value the most. 
your affections and that which you actually find of worth is that which you will commit your money and your time and your energies to. Is it your ultimate aim to just accumulate money? Is your goal to just be the most popular person? Is your desire to climb up the corporate ladder to build a bigger and bigger business? Do you want to have the best looking house on the block? Do you long for prestige and recognition in those things that you're involved in? More than likely, if that's what consumes your heart, if that's what occupies your thoughts and your time, and if that's where you direct your energies and your money to, that is where your heart is. This is the pulse of your true religion. It doesn't matter how much you give lip service to. What matters is what, you, what do you love? What do you love? You can be passionate about, about many different things. You can be passionate about family. You can be passionate about your work. You can be passionate about ministry even. But are you passionate for God? I want you to think, Think about the end of your life for a moment. And if we were to take a ledger sheet and we were to record all the time that you wasted on your life in one column and pursuing worldly goods, flirting with sin, trying to build your own empire, trying to accumulate wealth, and we recorded all of that time on one side of the page. And then on the other side of the page, we recorded all that time that you spent in fruitfulness for God. Or those times spent in the pursuit of holiness. The time that you spent in communion with God. The time you spent in prayer. The time that you spent in service to others around you. How would that ledger page look? What would it look like? What if we were to just take an inventory of the past week? What would that look like? You see, I wonder... How many of us have lost a sense of the sweetness of our Savior because of our own carelessness? I wonder how many of us have allowed our communion with Christ to waver because of our own prayerlessness. I wonder how many of us have grieved the Holy Spirit because of outright disobedience. Oh, beloved of God, you who have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you've been adopted as a daughter and a king. You who in the infinite wisdom of God have been redeemed and you've been granted the keys to the kingdom. You who God has set his affections on and has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you love God this morning? I'm not talking about lip service. I'm talking about action. Love is an action. Love does something. As Thomas Watson said, it's an industrious affection. It must be active. It sets its hands working and its feet running. If we love God, our desire will be after Him. He who loves God breathes after communion with Him. He who loves God is unable to find contentment in anything without Him. You can do many good things. You can do many great things. But if you're not doing them for God, and by the strength of God, it is all vanity. Where is your heart this morning? Is your heart in the world? Is your heart divided? Is your heart set on earthly things and earthly goods, or is it set upon God? Because ultimately, as this text teaches us, where your money will flow is where your heart is. Your time will be consumed 
with where your heart is. Where is your heart, church? What are the longings of your heart? Beg God to give you a heart for Him. Wrestle with Him until He gives you the blessing of divine love for Him. Let's pray. Father, we can all readily admit that we don't love you as we ought to. But we need your help day by day to reveal to us the excellencies of your character, the beauty of your holiness, the love which your Son gave us by dying on the cross. Help those things to be written on our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to love you more and more. Let our lives be beautiful, a beautiful aroma, an offering of sacrifice of praise to you. God, this is our heart's prayer this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.